Please open your Bibles to the 22nd chapter of Luke. You'll find the notes in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, the text for this morning's message is on the back of the bulletin. And after three years of study in Luke, we have arrived at the beginning of our Lord's passion, our Lord's suffering. Um, we're at the end of chapter 22, or the middle end of chapter 22. In chapter 23, Jesus is tried, crucified, and in chapter 24, he is risen again, and then Luke's gospel ends. We're on hallowed ground, an intensely personal, powerful, agonizing moment of our Lord, wrestling in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. So let's read Luke 22, 39 through 46, and ask the Lord's help as we study this. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. The disciples followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And when he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. Lord God, in this text we see the utter faithfulness of your son, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We see his real and full humanity. We see the turmoil and conflict, the battle of faith. We see the failure of the disciples in stark contrast. So, Lord God, I pray as we study this passage, you would give us eyes to see, that we would see and behold the glories of your Son, and that we would model our lives, our prayers, our battles after his and not the disciples. We are thankful that he triumphed in this temptation. In Jesus' name, amen. All the Gospels... And contain accounts of Jesus' prayer on the night before he was arrested. And you'll see from this text that really, look at verse 47, which just picks up with the arrest. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And so here it is. Here it begins. Jesus' work in Jerusalem that he's been heading to since chapter 9, with his face set to Jerusalem. It begins here. The passion, the suffering begins here. And Luke frames this text... With bookends, you see that in verse 40 and 46. It begins with Jesus' command to the disciples, pray that you may not enter temptation. And it ends, inclusio, with rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And so sandwiched in between Jesus' command and instruction to the disciples is his own prayer. As we're going to see the contrast of one man's faithfulness, his struggle, his triumph, the disciples' failure. And from that, we're going to try to learn how we can triumph in temptation, how our Lord 
did that. Luke has set up this contrast. Different gospel accounts contain different details. Luke has stripped many of them away, I think highlighting that contrast between our Lord's utter faithfulness and triumph and trial and disciples' failure. We're going to look at it in three points. Point number one, verses 39 to 41, preparation. Preparation. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when they came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. Now understand this. Our Lord Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen this evening. He's already told the disciples back in chapter um, 22, earlier in this chapter, verse 22, the Son of Man goes and has been determined, but woe to him who is he betrayed by. The hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. He, he knows tonight's the night. This isn't a surprise for him. This isn't a shock. And so knowing that G, he is about to be handed over and betrayed, knowing that the trial leading to the crucifixion, is at hand. This prayer is intentional. Jesus is preparing for his suffering. You've got to see that. That's really the big contrast. He's been warning the disciples. He warned them at the end of his message about his return, praying at all times that you may stand, have strength to stand. He warned them that Satan had requested to sift them all. He's going to warn them twice in this text to pray. Are they preparing themselves for struggle and temptation? No, they are not. What is Jesus doing? He is preparing himself. This encounter, this event, this time of prayer is necessary for him to succeed in his sin bearing. It's not incidental. Jesus, in other words, knows a very difficult path is ahead of him. He's about to go through some very deep waters. And Jesus, in preparation for that trial, spends this time in prayer. And so we see that Jesus departs from the Mount of Olives. And this is the last time in the third gospel where we will see Jesus being followed by his disciples. He went out, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Luke has already told us this was his pattern. In the Passion Week, Jesus would teach from dawn to dusk in the temple. And according to chapter 21, verse 37 and 38, every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, Early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. He doesn't alter his custom. He's not trying to avoid Judas and the arrest. He's doing what is predictable. Remember, Judas has been hired to find Jesus in some location without large mobs of crowds. What What the scribes and his opponents are afraid of is his popularity. They want to catch him without a crowd. And so Jesus doesn't break his pattern. Jesus doesn't alter his course so as to avoid the arrest. And Luke does not give the name of the garden, simply the place, indicating that this was well known. The other gospels let us know this is Gethsemane. And there, point B, Jesus commands the disciples to pray. And this is on the heels of many such commands. As early as chapter 11, he taught the disciples how to pray. Our Father, we're in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done <clears throat> on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. He taught them that back in chapter 11. He taught them in light of his second coming that they are to pray 
that they might stand, Luke 21, 36, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. He's given them reason to pray because Satan has demanded to sift them. I mean, if there was ever a time to pray, it's when Satan's gunning for you. And so he gives them this command. And, and they are not preparing. They are not taking this seriously enough. He tells them that one of them will betray him, which leads to them arguing about who's the greatest. He tells them that Satan is gunning for them, and they're going to fall asleep. They need to pray. They will be tried and tested this night as well. This is a night of trial for all of them, is it not? They will be scattered. Peter will deny. And Jesus will persevere in faithfulness. And Luke is showing us why. Why the one is successful and the others fail. And it's too easy for us to answer, well, he's Jesus. He's God. Of course he succeeds. And they're weak men. Of course they fail. Jesus, being fully God and fully man, thought it necessary, important, critical that he spend this time in prayer. In other words, as I read the record in Luke, I'm to conclude the reason Jesus is so faithful into chapters 23 is precisely because... He sought God's help. He is preparing for what is ahead of him. The disciples are not. He commands the disciples to pray in light of Satan's recent demand to sift them and in light of his own imminent departure. This is, after all, the last time in Luke where the the teacher will lead and the 11 follow behind him. And then, as Jesus makes further preparation, he isolates himself for prayer. He isolates himself for prayer. Now, we live in a day and age where we've got electric gizmos that can interrupt us at almost any time. If you, like me, have a smartphone, you're no more than a few feet away from an alert. Somebody likes something you posted on Facebook or whatever. Jesus is not living with those things, and yet Jesus consistently would withdraw and isolate himself in prayer. You get the importance. If we're going to follow his example, if we're going to succeed in our testing and trials, how much more do we need to take measures to isolate ourselves, to find time alone, away from the tyranny of the urgent, away from the emails and the alerts and Facebook. This is Jesus' pattern. And prayer always accompanied Jesus before critical moments in his ministry. In Luke 3.21, right before he was baptized. Now, when all the people were being baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, and the heavens opened and the Father announces, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus, as he was teaching through the synagogues, Luke 4.42, and when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. The people sought him. I would have kept him from leaving. In Luke 6, 12, right before he picks the 12 apostles, in those days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And again, Luke wants us to see when he comes out, he knows which 12 to pick. It's not primarily seen as a function of his deity and omniscience, rather a function of his faithfulness in prayer. Luke wants us to make those connections. How did Jesus know who to pick? You could give one answer, well, because he's God. I think Luke wants us to conclude, because he labored faithfully in prayer all night, his father gave him the wisdom to know whom to choose. Luke, more so than any other gospel, emphasizes Jesus' full humanity. Remember in Luke chapter 2, Jesus grows in wisdom and stature. 
And so even though Jesus possesses all the attributes of God, we, I think Luke wants us to understand he is not walking around using, um, functioning omnisciently. He doesn't know who touched him earlier in Luke's gospel. And here we see a battle of wills. We see his, his flesh, his humanity cry out against what is coming. And so Jesus prepares himself for temptation by spending time in prayer, and he makes sure that prayer will be focused and functional by isolating himself. And we would do well to follow that. Getting alone. How often? I mean, this, I must confess, prayer, detailed, deep, long prayer, is probably one of my weakest spiritual disciplines. And I'm humbled again and again when I see our Lord's pattern to getting alone. Finding time with God. If, if Jesus is going to pray the way he needs to, for the length of time he needs to, Jesus will prioritize privacy and isolation. And in that sense, we get a great privilege. Jesus brings the 12 with him, and he goes a stone's throw away, and they, from you know, 15, 20 feet, are watching. We get to be brought in. We get brought in close. We see what happens. We are even more intimately seeing what is going on than even they as Luke narrates what happens. So this is Jesus' preparation. Now, point number two, the actual prayer itself, anticipation. Anticipation. What we see is that what Jesus is praying about is all about the anticipation of what is coming, what is about to be brought upon him. He begins his prayer by kneeling. And again, there's no laws or rules about how to pray. You can pray in your car driving to work. You can pray in your bed. But there is, I think, significance to how our bodies move in prayer. Um, kneeling is a sign of supplication. It's, it's how Solomon prayed in 1 Kings 8.54. Now, as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and pleaded to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord where he had knelt with hands outstretched towards heaven. And when I can, I make it a point to try to kneel in prayer. Because we are composite beings, our body and our souls united. Our Lord is on his knees in supplication to his Father. And then we read in verse 42 what his prayer is. Saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, obviously, there's more prayer going on than that. He endures in prayer for a while, but this is the sum of it. This is the essence of it. Jesus is anticipating the cup, and he prays that it might pass. So Jesus prays earnestly that the cup might pass. And again, this, this is not theater. The agonies we see here are the real torment in Jesus' soul and spirit, his real trial, this is a real test. This is a real battle. He is fully human. I want to read a quote from Riken. We should never imagine that somehow all this was far easier for Jesus because he was the son of God. No, this was as hard a thing as any man has ever done. It was as a man that Jesus suffered alone in the garden a man with all the physical weakness, mental pressure, 
and emotional anguish that is common to our humanity. He, too, was tempted. He was tormented and in turmoil in the agonizing conflict of wrestling with the Father's will. He was weak and in need of God's strength. Jesus suffered all of this and more. Indeed, Jesus was tempted in every which way, yet he never gave in, so the temptation never relented. He was tormented to the very point of death. He was so weak that in mercy there appeared to him an angel from heaven. He was in such absolute agony that his sweat ran red with blood. Who can ever tell what suffering Jesus endured for our salvation? Not just on the cross, but also in the garden. Luke is demonstrating that as a reality. As a reality. In fact... Um, James Edwards, another commentator, writes this, the most intense description of Jesus' suffering in the Gospels occurs not at Golgotha, but at Gethsemane, in his decision to submit to his Father's redemptive will. So he prays a simple petition, first with the condition, Father, if you are willing, if it's okay, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. What's, what's this cup to which he refers? Well, in the Old Testament, a cup could be many things, but usually it's the notion of your lot, what was apportioned to you. So we know in the Psalms, my cup runneth over. But in this context, it's clearly the cup of God's wrath. Cup of God's wrath. Jesus is anticipating his father, whom has already gone on record publicly in Luke's gospel. I am well pleased with my son, being furious and angry at him. On the cross, Jesus has never known his father's displeasure before. He has never felt his father's anger and wrath, and the thought of it approaching is what fills him with dread. Let me make one other other point. It is not the suffering of the crucifixion itself that Jesus dreads. Church history is filled with accounts of of faithful men and women who have gone to death like this, singing, singing. We'd have to conclude then they were braver than Jesus. No, no. The the crucifixion itself, the nails through the hands, the feet, the agonies of the cross, as intense as they were, pale in comparison to Jesus' anticipation of bearing the wrath of God for the sin of man. Listen to Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Or Jeremiah 25, 15 through 17. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. And make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending against them. So I took the cup of, from the Lord's hand and made all the nations whom the Lord sent me drink it. Or again in Ezekiel 23, you will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation. You shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your breasts for I have spoken, declares the Lord. This is tied directly to the cup of the covenant. How does Jesus purchase the covenant? With his blood. So Jesus is anticipating his father, who for all of eternity past, for all of eternity future, is well pleased with him. 
who has declared publicly, I am pleased, my son pleases me. He's felt his father's joy. He's only known that. And he knows hanging on the cross, he'll be forsaken by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he will know his father's fury. Additionally, the cup represents the guilt of our sin. The guilt of our sin. Jesus actually um, has just quoted Isaiah 53. Turn there to Isaiah 53 when he talked about being numbered to the transgressors. He's identified himself as fulfilling that. As you turn there, I'll just read Luke twenty-two thirty-seven. For I tell you, the scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. So Isaiah 53, Jesus has just told us, is about him. And here, prophetically, the Lord God describes the sufferings of his son. This is what Jesus dreaded, not the simple pain of the crucifixion, as intense and agonizing as that was, but the bearing of our sin. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jump down to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand out of the anguish of his soul. He shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge so the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. And then here's the verse Jesus has just quoted. Therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And in this sense, Jesus' temptation here is the polar opposite of ours. Think about it. When you and I are tempted, what is it? Some evil in me, some craving, some lust, some desire is yearning for something wrong and corrupt, right? That part of me is willing to forsake fellowship with God. The part of me that is being tempted is willing to set aside peace with God so that I can have what I want, the filth of my sin, That's my temptation. You're my temptation. We must resist evil impulses to forsake God's pleasure to embrace sin, right? And with Jesus, it is the exact opposite. There's no evil part of Jesus craving something wicked. Rather, Jesus' own holiness, we sang about it this morning, holy, 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 is reviling and cringing away from the thought of bearing our sin. Jesus' own holiness is protesting the notion of becoming guilty of sin. It's the exact opposite. 
We have to resist sinful desires to forsake our fellowship with God to embrace sin. Jesus has to resist a holy desire to remain uncontaminated that he might maintain his fellowship with the Father. It's it's amazing. It's amazing. And it means this temptation was real. Jesus would know guilt. You know, on the cross... According to 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. On the cross, Jesus becomes guilty of our sin, really guilty. The atonement doesn't work unless Jesus really receives our guilt, which means he feels the guilt. God's wrath rightly, justly falls upon him. On the cross, Jesus becomes the sinner who never sinned, a sinner because he has willingly accepted the imputation of our guilt. The law views him as guilty. He truly is guilty. That's why God can justly punish him, even though he has never sinned. And for the Holy One of God, that must have been a horrific prospect to consider. Jesus' own holiness, the strength of his righteousness, is the cause of the temptation. No, I don't want to experience guilt. No, I don't want to feel my father's displeasure. Now, Jesus grounds his petition in submission to the father. And amazingly, um, amazingly, he perseveres. But that is the nature of his temptation. It is a real temptation. Luke wants us to understand it is an agonizing trial. An agonizing trial. But point C, praise God, Jesus submits to his father's will. Jesus submits to his Father's will. And I want to see, how how does he do it? Because in our own ways, God will call each and every one of us at times to endure, to embrace, to walk through hardship. And our natural inclination will be to avoid suffering, to avoid sorrow, to avoid difficulty. And we too, like Paul, will cry out, Lord, remove this thorn from my flesh. The answer Jesus is going to get is no. No, there is no other way. No, it is not my will for this cup to pass. In fact, I think that sets up the further wrestling as he understands that's the answer. Look at verse 43. An angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and in agony he prayed more earnestly. Jesus is beginning to understand the answer is no. How does he ultimately submit? What? How does he endure? How does he not turn away? I mean, my natural inclination when I know God is calling me to do something hard and difficult is to want to hide in the corner, to run away, like Jonah, get on the ship heading the other direction. (laughs) The Lord calls some of us to walk through sickness, difficult relationships, difficult people, doing hard things. How can we submit our will to the Father? I mean, on the one hand, this text makes it clear. Feel free to cry out to your Father. God, I don't want this. It doesn't look good to me. Please, if it's your will, I don't want to deal with this. The righteous son of God did that. You're not being weak or wimpy if you ask God to take it away. But it needs to be in a context of submission. What you choose is best. Three, three, three points, I think, of how Jesus submits to his Father's will from his teaching earlier in the book. Turn back to, um, to chapter 4, where Jesus is last tempted by the devil. The temptations, again, in chapter 4 are similar to these. Satan offers Jesus good prizes, good gifts, through the wrong way. 
Jesus is first hungry. Satan says, hey, command these stones to turn to bread. Wanting to end hunger is not bad. Satan offers him the kingdoms of the world. Jesus wants the kingdoms of the world. When he returns in Revelation chapter 20, he has the title deed to the kingdoms of the world. Tattooed on his thigh, king of kings, lord of lords. He wants that genuinely. Satan was offering it not through a cross, but through worshiping the devil. And in every instance, Jesus does not rely on his own wisdom. He does not rely on his own answers. He quotes scripture. It is written, verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone. Verse 8, it is written, you shall not worship the Lord. You shall, you shall worship the Lord your God. And him only shall you serve. And then in verse 12, um, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus, here's your first point, trusts his father's wisdom. He trusts his father's wisdom. That's the first point we can understand is the Lord calls us into trials and suffering. Yes, from our vantage point, this does not look good. And God welcomes our petitions. But I've learned to pray more and more um, as I pray for others, pray for myself to escape, to avoid suffering and calamities. Lord, something like this, Lord, it seems good to us that you'd heal this person. It seems good to us that you'd end this trial. But our perspective is finite. And even Jesus in the incarnation is not functionally omniscient. Remember, he's growing in wisdom. He's not knowing who touched him. And so from his perspective, it seems good for the cup to pass. Yet he trusts his father's wisdom. He trusts his father's plan. And that, that's all God is calling on us to do. I, I don't know why some of the terrible things that happen, happen. We, we know why this is happening. This, this is helpful in Luke. We know why the cross is happening. It's so that God might save us. But, but people come and they talk to me. Why, why does this person die? Why did this person lose their job? Why? I don't know, but I know my father has a good and wise plan. I know that his word can be trusted even when it is counterintuitive. Jesus trusted his father's wisdom. Now turn to Luke 11. As Jesus taught his disciples about prayer. He taught his disciples about prayer. Jesus knew his father's love. Jesus knew his father's love. And immediately after Jesus teaches the disciples to pray in verses 2 through 4, he gives them this encouragement. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, Though he will not get up and give his friend anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks knocks. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks will be opened. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? If he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And then notice what Jesus does not say. What father among you, he does not say, if his son asks for a fish, he'll give him fish. 
doesn't say the son who asks for fish gets fish. doesn't say the son who asks for an egg gets an egg. What he says is, whatever his father gives him in response to that request will be good. It won't be a scorpion. It won't be a stone. Jesus is not promising that everything you ask for, God will give you. But because he's your father, that's how Jesus lifts up this prayer, is it not? Father, he can be confident that whatever his father's answer is, is not a stone, it's not a scorpion, it's good. Because he knows his father loves him. And likewise, when we tremble at things that look honestly like stones, like scorpions, we need to trust and remember our Father's love. Our Father loves us. He doesn't give us bad gifts. He may not give us the fish we ask for. He may not give us the egg we ask for. He's not given us a stone. And that's rooted in our confidence of his love. And temptation will say, can you really trust God? Can you trust him that this is good? And faith is sometimes taking a bite on something that looks like a stone. Afraid you're going to break your teeth, but okay. Jesus knew his father's love. He trusts his father's wisdom. He knows his father's love. And Jesus, third, valued his father's glory. Ultimately, Jesus goes to the cross because of his commitment to his father's will. There's a popular song, um, you're probably familiar with Above All. And I, I get that the intention of the song is, is well-meaning, but it's absolutely inaccurate. Jesus' ultimate commitment, and when I say ultimate, I mean ultimate, is not to you and to me, ultimately. It's not to his own self-interest, ultimately. What is it here? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. When push comes to shove, when the sweat comes out like blood, who is Jesus thinking of in the garden? It's not you and me. It's his Father. And it's his commitment to his will and his glory that ultimately causes him to move forward. That that is not to say he isn't committed to us. That doesn't mean he doesn't love us. That doesn't mean he doesn't value us highly. But ultimately, ultimately, Jesus is saying... It seems good to me. From my perspective, from my vantage point, I would have this cup passed. Nevertheless, your will be done. It is Jesus' ultimate, complete, and unwavering commitment to his Father's glory that takes him to the cross. I know it makes us feel special to say we were the top thing on his mind. That is not the record of Scripture. Jesus ultimately makes much of God. Now, in doing so, he makes much of us. But ultimately, he makes much of his father and his will. Jesus valued his father's glory. And again, that's the challenge for us, is it not? We want to value our pleasure, our comfort, our ease. And God may say to us, I can glorify myself more through this trial in your life. And we have to decide, what do we value more? John's gospel, Lazarus dies for the glory of God. Jesus waits and lets him die. It says, this sickness is for the glory of God. And we see the end of the story, and Lazarus is raised, and God is glorified. God loves you, he loves me, but ultimately he's concerned with our holiness, and ultimately he's concerned with glorifying himself in us, and that means life may not always be easy. And if we're going to persevere in temptation and trial, we need to trust God's wisdom, 
We need to know and believe in his love. And we too need to value his glory. That's Jesus' prayer. Petition, the cup pass. A commitment ultimately unwaveringly to doing his father's will. Let's now see the point three or the resolution. What's the result of this? What's the result of this? Now again, the, the father does not say yes, does he not? Chapter 23 has Jesus drink the cup to the dregs. The father does not say yes. But the father does not give him a, a stone or a scorpion. He sends an angel to strengthen him. But the father's answer, in other words, is no, but I will give you help. No, but I will strengthen you. And sometimes that's God's answer for us. I will not take you out of the trial, but I will give you strength. An angel from heaven strengthened him. In fact, in Matthew's account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, an angel there likewise ministered to him. And again, we, we see that Jesus is right to the breaking point. I mean, I, I, I don't believe the Father does things for no reason. And so if an angel appears to strengthen Jesus, my assumption is Jesus needed strengthening. The Father thought Jesus needed strengthening, which meant Jesus' strength and his energy and his will were right out to the breaking point. So the Father sends an angel to strengthen him. In fact, Hebrews um, chapter 5, verse 7, I think gives a fitting commentary on this passage. It says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. The father does not respond by removing the cup, but he does respond by strengthening his son. Strengthening his son. Which leads Jesus, second point, he continued to pray even more fervently. I take it here, why, why is it even more difficult? I think because Jesus understands the answer to his prayer is no. The angel strengthens him. Implicit, you're going you're gonna to get through this. I'm gonna, you will walk this path. The, the turmoil in his soul grows even more. I mean, look at the way Luke describes it. He prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He continued to pray even more fervently. Number three, he was in intense agony. Intense agony. And it gives me great comfort and great help to know when God is calling me to do something difficult, when I'm having to counsel someone else to do something difficult, that our Savior and our High Priest wrestled in prayer. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with that battle. It doesn't mean you're fundamentally weak. Our Lord wrestled with that battle. He, he has to accept that answer, be at peace with it. In agony, he prayed more earnestly. How great is this agony? Luke, the physician, brings out details that none of the other Gospels have. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, there's been a lot of debate. Is Jesus really sweating blood? The Greek word here, like or as, it's possible. I mean, there is a rare condition. MacArthur writes this. This suggests a rare condition known as hematidrosis, which is characterized by blood oozing from the skin, 
It is most frequently caused by extreme mental and emotional strain, causing subcutaneous capillaries to dilate and burst, releasing blood to mingle with sweat. That's possible. It's also possible his nighttime, it's dark, sweats on his body dropping to the ground, and from a distance it looked dark. Luke's point is not for us to debate the medical issue, but to demonstrate the intensity of this battle. It's visceral. It's a physical battle that's overflowing into his body. This is a real battle. This is real agony. This is a real struggle. And God sent an angel to help him strengthen through it. Note point four, he triumphed in prayer and rose. He receives the answer, no. No, but I'll strengthen you. No, but I'll comfort you. And he continues more earnestly, and the sweat comes out and drops like blood. Verse 45, and when he rose from prayer. And we know that Jesus persevered. He won this battle. He finished in triumph, and he rose. And and this really is the place where we see Jesus in anguish. The rest of the time on the cross, he's suffering, but he is in complete composure, complete control. He doesn't falter. He doesn't hesitate. Why? Because he won the battle here. And if you wonder, why did I fail yesterday afternoon? Perhaps you, like the disciples, missed the real battle yesterday morning in prayer. This is where the battle is won. I'll read again the quote by Edwards. The most intense description of Jesus' suffering in the Gospels occurs not at Golgotha, but at Gethsemane, in his decision to submit to his Father's redemptive will. So Jesus has triumphed in prayer. And we are to understand his utter, steadfast, resolute faithfulness through the rest of this chapter in 23 is the direct result of this. I'll ask... Another question is, if the sinless Son of God needed to wrestle this much in prayer to be faithful, how much more do we? Do I? I think I'm going to pass a test tomorrow, and I'm not setting aside time to pray. I'm fooling myself. Do I think I'm stronger than Jesus? And Luke sets that contrast up, doesn't he? Because bracketing Jesus' prayer are the disciples who Jesus has told him earlier in this chapter, look at verse 28, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Not this trial. No, do they stay with Jesus? He's commanded them, pray. He's given them reason to pray. Satan's demanded you. What do they do? The disciples. Their grief has led them to sleep. Their grief has led them to sleep. They abandon their Lord in his most painful trial and they fall asleep they're tired they're weary and this is just the culmination of their weakness that we've seen jesus tells them when you'll betray me they start to defend themselves i'm better than you who's gonna be the greatest jesus tells them satan is gonna sift them all they're overconfident they're not preparing why do they scatter like sheep why do they fall away This night, right here, they didn't pray. 
Why did Jesus persevere faithfully to the cross? Jesus prayed. That's what Luke wants us to draw the conclusion. Their grief has led them to sleep. Point two, their failure to pray has prepared them for failure. Their failure to pray has prepared them for failure. And just how often do I fail, my Lord and God, because I fail to pray? How often do we? Again, Jesus sees the trial coming. And he prepares for the trial by setting aside time to pray. And he wrestles through it with his father. The disciples are warned of a trial coming. They don't pray, they fail. That's a great, wonderful thing here as well. Why is it, given that they are proud, self-confident, not prepared, why ultimately do the disciples not fall away utterly? Look at verse 32. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. (laughs) Not only is Jesus battling in prayer for himself, but his own prayers are the very reason the 11, when they stumble and fall, they rise again. Ultimately, our perseverance, our finishing of our course will depend upon our Savior's prayers for us. We are weak, we are frail. We would do well to learn these lessons. We we would do well to follow in his footsteps the pattern he has given. We'd see trouble coming, we'd set aside time, we'd pray, but ultimately it's his utter faithfulness that guarantees our perseverance. What a wonderful Savior we have. I'm going to call the worship team up as we close with a very fitting song. He triumphed in the garden. He triumphed on the cross. All glory be to Christ.